On this episode, Devin Nunes, the Republican congressman from California. When BuzzFeed produced the Steele dossier, I mean, no one that's ever read intelligence reports could have taken any of that seriously. And it would not have taken, it would have taken the FBI a matter of hours to determine that that thing is completely fraudulent. I'm David M. Drucker with The Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, a ricochet podcast and a companion to my book, just out from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. First, I want to welcome everyone back from the Thanksgiving holiday and wish everyone a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and especially right now, a Happy Hanukkah. The Festival of Lights, otherwise known by my kids as Eight Presents and Eight Nights, began at sundown on Sunday. In Trump's Shadow, the podcast has been on a brief sabbatical these past few weeks while I focused on promoting In Trump's Shadow, the book. They don't tell you this when you write a book, maybe because it's daunting enough as it is, but promoting a book is every bit the work that writing a book is. But it's great to be back here on Ricochet for the podcast. And my guest this week, Devin Nunes, doesn't disappoint. Among the topics we hit, the Durham investigation of the Russia investigation, and I did my best to pin him down on why Donald Trump always refused to jawbone Vladimir Putin, even though it seemed there was no one he wouldn't hit with a verbal broadside. After all, this is in Trump's shadow. And now, my conversation with Devin Nunes. Devin Nunes, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Dave. Uh, so listen, there's a lot I wanted to get to, and it's been a while since you and I have talked in this format. Um, and look, one of the things that has been in the news lately is the Durham Special Counsel investigation, which is the investigation into the Russia investigation. Mm-hmm. And we now know that it appears as though you know, we're beginning to see evidence that that dossier on former President Donald Trump that seemed to be at the heart of, or at least one of the elements at the heart of the Russia probe while he was president um, is as uh, false as you insisted it was way back when. Mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to kind of get your, even though I don't tend to do that much news of the day on this podcast, I'm making an exception here. Uh, just because of your position as chairman and, and ranking member of the intelligence committee in the House, as the majority has gone back and forth, um, and the fact that you were such a strong defender of President Trump while he was in office in relation to all of this Russia business, mm-hmm. what has been your reaction in terms of what you've seen from the Durham investigation, and what do you think well, we're going to see next? Well, I guess... Uh... You know, I can remember you did a, I did a couple podcasts with you probably back in the 17, 18 timeframe. And I'm sure that everything that I said on those podcasts at the time uh, basically was true or we actually, we, we were, they were much worse than we even thought they were. So it was pretty obvious from the beginning of all of this, that this was a completely manufactured fake news narrative. And it, it really is, I think the gold standard or how to build a fake narrative 101 that leftists would teach uh, when you go to left-wing training school. 
And that's, you know, from the very beginning of this, uh, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, it's about, you know, you know, oh, you're just defending a Republican president, defending Trump. No, it's, it's, it's not that. I, I'm old enough to remember, and I know we discussed this, you know, years ago on your podcast, uh, back in 15 and 16, I was pulling my hair out because I could not get the Obama-Biden administration to do a damn thing about Russia, as Russia was essentially manhandling the United States all around the globe, just pushing us around, including in, in Syria. They took over Crimea. They were playing games in Libya. So, so you can imagine back in late 2016, uh, right after the election and Trump wins, we get a briefing. Everything is normal. There's nothing new. This is nothing that the Russians, you know, the Russians are always meddling, not only in our election, but every election that they can mess with. And it's usually, you know, it's not really changing votes. It's just, it's just, you know, them positioning, right? And, you know, I, I, you can even make an argument that, uh, that, you know, most countries do this to some degree or, or another. And right after the election, we were briefed and there was nothing going on. Um, that was out of the norm. And then in December, the fake news narrative start began uh, in full. It, the Clinton campaign had dropped some nuggets out there. They didn't get a lot of takers. Uh, it was a lot of um, kind of either has-beens or, or, or left-wing hacks that were writing about the Russia hoax back in, in June, July. It looked as just like a, a, to deflect the email, the Hillary Clinton email scandal, which now we know that's exactly what was happening. But in December, December of 16, um, the, it went pro. The pros got involved. So essentially the Washington Post's main hacks all got involved uh, in the disinformation campaign. And so there, was a, a, there, were, there were leaks. They were getting leaks of classified information in December of 16. And then it just continued. And it was all stuff that was hocus pocus, Russians everywhere, except Russians were nowhere. And they knew that the only place the Russians were, were involved in the Clinton campaign and they had to know it. And that's what Durham now uh, has proven with these indictments. So I, I, where does Durham go from here? Um, it, look, he, it looks like he's got the outlines uh, of a massive conspiracy case. Conspiracy is hard to prove, but he's got, he's got the three big links. He's got somebody in the FBI who's already pled guilty. He's got a, a, indicted a Clinton lawyer and indicted um, a, uh, the, the so-called source that was just a, a phony source of the dossier. But you know, this whole idea, someone who's been doing this for a decade, and I guess at the time, um, you know, reading the intelligence reports, you know, I guess I had, what, six or seven years experience at that time. But when, the, when BuzzFeed produced the Steele dossier, I mean, no one that's ever read intelligence reports could have taken any of that seriously. And it would not have taken, it would have taken the FBI a matter of hours to determine that that thing is completely fraudulent. So will Durham get these nasty, dirty FBI DOJ officials? We don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be hard. Or are they just going to stick it on the Clinton campaign and their, their operatives? And, and, and will they not be able to get beyond that? We don't know. But, uh, but clearly, like I said at the outset, this is the, uh, the gold plated or platinum plated uh, 101 on how to be a left winger and how to use the media to develop a fake news narrative uh, to, to put out propaganda uh, to really uh, destroy the fabric of America and target 
your opposition political party, which are things that happen in places like Putin's Russia, the old Soviet Union, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, any authoritarian dictatorship around the globe. Uh, that's what the Clinton campaign and the Democrats did. Uh, and the Washington Post, who they won all their Pulitzers, they were the main bad actors in all of this because they were, they're supposed, you know, they're the, the paper of record. I mean, I think they're all total fake news and hacks, but they are the paper of record for our nation's capital. And they were fully engaged in this, taking leaks involved in criminal behavior. Multiple times they knew they were involved in criminal behavior, all for something that they knew at the same, same time they were taking criminal leaks of what would be classified information. They knew underlying it that there was no you know, embassy or consulate in Miami, Russian consulate. They knew there was no evidence of, of Donald Trump and prostitutes peeing on beds. They knew that you know, Cohen wasn't in Prague. I mean, all stuff that would have just taken a second or minutes, hours for any, any, any FBI agent, any field office to just laugh at this because nobody could have ever taken this seriously. So uh, where this goes, Dave, that's, that's kind of my current thoughts on it. We'll see if uh, Durham uh, comes down with any, any more indictments, but I'd say there's, there's gotta be another dozen people or so that are definitely in the, in the crosshairs that were involved in this, not including the fake news media, but the Pulitzer prize winning uh, Washington Post reporters and New York Times to some degree too. All right, listen, let me try and unpack some of this and and touch on a number of, of items that I think might be useful because that's a, that's a, a lot for people to digest, um, at least if they're not you, <laughs> haven't mm-hmm. followed, whatever people's opinion are on this, um, you follow this very closely. A lot of people haven't. So let me let me back up here and just start with you because not even though you're a lot more well-known than when you and I first started uh, talking, um, politician, a reporter, uh, almost a decade ago, um, I, I, I don't think a lot of people may understand where you're coming from, from a foreign policy perspective. Um, when it comes to Vladimir Putin and Russia, my experience with you is that you've always been very hawkish, that you see Putin as a bad actor who inserts himself and particularly in ways to cause the United States problems and create challenges for us geopolitically. What has been your read on Putin and how do they tend to manipulate, insert themselves and try and influence the atmosphere within elections, whether in the United States or in other countries? Well, the, they always have for, you know, going back, you know, to the, you know, the Soviet Union, you know, all through the 50s and 60s. And like I said, all all countries do this to some some degree or, or another. Um, but I will. I think I have to correct you, though, Dave. I think you and I have known each other over well over a decade. Uh, I think uh, you're getting you're getting older, man. Um, I so, forget things now. So, you know, the frustrating part was there were there were easy things that we could do um, back in that 2015 16 time frame that would have really beefed up uh, Ukraine. And Ukraine is really the the pivotal uh, country here because. If Putin takes over Ukraine, which he very easily could at, at any given point if he wants to, um, it, it really shakes up Eastern Europe. And then you're back in this Cold War posture that uh, places like Romania, Poland, uh, um, uh, the old uh, Yugoslavia, 
uh, all of those places have to be nervous if Putin tries to, to go to go and do this. And, um, and and that really is the you know overall. I mean, look at the end of the day, these are guys with with very sophisticated uh, weapons of of mass destruction, and so they're a force to be reckoned with. They have one of the world's largest nuclear arsenals. Uh, they're always developing new weapons, and they never act uh, in concert to you know they're they're never trying to be. And sadly, uh, they're not trying to be productive world citizens because that's I think the saddest part. That, by the way, every president going back to since the fall of the uh, since the fall of the um, Berlin Wall, uh, every single president, uh, every political party has seen the uh, the real opportunity for Russia as a very uh, not only having a great military, but a lot of great, uh, sophisticated um uh, well-educated people that, that can that are you know that can do everything from from engineering of complicated weapons to to new technology to obviously now the uh the web uh, which they're very good at on the on, on cyber and they're a uh, massive amounts of of wealth in both oil and gas and, and resources and uh, they they could have all this time and i think everybody holds out this hope that why can't they just you know they could be so powerful on their own and so pro so productive for the world um, if they would just be a normal country and try to uh, be, uh, you know, I don't know if a Western's the right word, uh, but for whatever reason, um, Putin well, just doesn't want to do that. He hasn't right. I mean, it's because of Putin. It. He doesn't want to do it. He has an iron grip on the country. Yeah. Let me ask you this, um, because you were urging as best you could as a Republican to a Democratic administration, the Obama administration to get tougher with Russia. And you wanted them to provide Ukraine with more uh, substantial and lethal means to defend itself against Russian incursion, uh, for example. Um, what did you make early in Trump's presidency, although this lasted throughout his presidency, of the fact that he seemed to be willing, almost eager to jawbone everybody, uh, not just domestically, but around the world. He would jawbone China. He would jawbone Japan. He would jawbone NATO. You need to you need to pick up the amount of money you're spending on your defense. He would jawbone China about its uh, trade imbalances as he saw it. Right. So he would uh, in defense of the United States and on behalf of the United States, he was willing to talk tough with everybody but he seemed either incapable or unwilling of talking tough to Putin. And in fact, often when questions would be posed to the former president um, about Putin's bad actions and, and Russia's bad act, actions under his leadership, uh, would often respond that, you know, the United States isn't so great either necessarily. We've also done bad things. So, so what, did you, what did you make of all of that in the beginning? Well, I, I don't make... Uh... Uh, much of it at all, because I think that's a fake news narrative that's out there. I think Trump was taking the position that all the other presidents have taken too that Putin has a great opportunity to make Russia a great country that participates in the West. So his position was no different than all these other guys, except the only difference is, is that he did go in and, and give Ukraine weapons. He tried to do everything he could to, to rightly call out NATO for their ineffective 
uh, capabilities that has long been something that a lot of us have known that the Department of Defense has never dealt with. Um, and he repositioned forces to uh, Poland and Romania. Let's not forget that Obama wouldn't do that. Trump did. So if you look the facts on the ground, Trump's saying no different than Bush, no different. I mean, remember Obama sneaking over, leaning over and say, let uh, Putin, let Vladimir know that after the election, I'll have more flexibility. I mean, that's way worse than Trump ever. Right. So that was did. Medvedev. So you're Medvedev. right. So, so, so Trump did three main things, armed, armed Ukraine, tried to get them, you know, some ability to, to defend themselves. But remember, Obama let that slip away. So Ukraine has been in a very tough position, but Trump was willing to do that, get, you know, training, uh, try to, to strengthen their military. But the bigger issues that he did is he what the Trump administration did is by moving forces into Poland and Romania and uh, and and the Baltics. Uh, all very critical, all things that, that no other president would do that Trump finally did. He finally took on NATO. And now, sadly, I think we're going, we're going backwards again uh, with Biden. I mean, th this whole idea that we would keep forces from World War II uh, at astronomical prices uh, in, the, in the UK, uh, in Germany, in Italy, uh, it's, it's just uh, mind-boggling to me the amount of money that we waste there uh, and it's not it's not mission focused. It's more, uh, you know, where do people want to live? Where do the bureaucrats want to live? Oh, my friend uh, Merkel, we're buddies with the Germans. So we're going to go ahead and keep seven military bases there. Uh, it has nothing to do with the mission. And, the, you know, the mission should be for our military. What are the most strategic places around the globe that we need to be so that we can project force uh, to keep trade lines open and to protect our our allies? Uh, and that has long been a, you know, since the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall, um, it's basically been a, just a bloated um, uh, military machine at NATO where NATO doesn't even participate. We have, you know, these huge inefficient bases that are not in, in strategic locations for the most part. Uh, and there's been a lack to take that on. And I, so I would argue that what Trump did is something that should have been done 20 years ago and a lot more needs to be done. Um, but, but, you know, the, the Biden administration... Uh, they're just going to continue down this this road of of you know having the military go woke. Uh, let's worry about you know green energy and wokeness in the military and critical race theory uh, instead of figuring out how to win wars if we have to fight them, uh, deter, provide deterrence, uh, and stay out of politics. Unfortunately, the military is not doing that, and NATO's for sure, for sure not doing that. Um, and, I, you know, it, it's uh, it's really unfortunate because, you know, we haven't even got to the real existential threat here, uh, which is China. Uh, China is the, the existential threat that we face. Before I shift, I just want to um, I want to attack this question from a different direction, because you're absolutely right that on the ground, President Trump's policy toward Russia was more hawkish than President Obama's, even though President Obama would often say the right thing. What I'm asking you is whether or not it hurt the president's ability to make this case and helped lend fuel to the Russia investigation that for whatever, that, that unlike previous presidents who wouldn't say any of the things Trump said to many people, he seemed to only not say those things in regard to Putin. In other words, Bush, Obama, Clinton, 
they wouldn't jawbone Putin, but neither would they jawbone the Chinese, NATO, and so on down the line. Whereas Trump would jawbone a whole bunch of people, but just not Putin, therefore creating this very interesting contrast. On top of which, if you look at that, and again, I'm just I'm talking about this. Yeah, from, I, I, guess I, I mean, I understand the I understand the point that you're making, but okay, I think that's because you had this fake news narrative that had been out there for so long that you know anything Russia, you just mention Russia, and immediately these fools jump on it and go, you know, and the next thing you know, it's like I mean, remember, I mean, they were calling me even to this day a you know Russian asset. So, so I don't really buy that. I mean, right, Trump but I can point to with, your statements, right? But I can I can point to your statements over the years and in interviews with me and, and everybody else, and it's very clear that you find Putin and 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 Moscow to be an adversary of the United States, and you've never been shy about saying so. And that's the difference. And this is not my way of asking you. Well, Trump got what he deserved because he didn't say things right. What I'm saying is. Wasn't it an interesting dichotomy that may have helped fuel this? Well, because his own statements obscured his policy, which on the ground was a much stronger, more hawkish policy than his predecessor. I, I mean, look, I understand, but I think you're falling in. I don't want to, you know, I'm on your podcast. It's so okay. Wanna, you know, I don't want to be argumentative. That's but fine. When you have the all the fake news outlets engaged in this propaganda. Uh, that on you know every pin and needle that drops anything Russia, all of a sudden you know everybody's a Russian agent. Everybody's a Russian agent if you say if you don't say you know anything bad to to Russia. And I would say that you know Trump had his unique way of dealing with these leaders, right? I mean, even today, I think I saw over the weekend. I mean, he still said that he got along with Kim Jong Un fine. And I think the way that the president viewed, you know, dealing with these people is you have to deal with them with respect. I mean, they may be dictators, they may be killers, but at the end of the day, you know, they they are up on the world stage. So you have to you have to work with them. And so I, I think people were oversensitive about Russia. I mean, if you look what what Trump did, it's far more than 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 Bush, than Obama, uh, for sure what Biden's doing today and for sure what Clinton did. I mean, to finally make those moves and move. Uh, military forces into Poland and Romania, uh, that should have been done 20 years ago and it wasn't. So, so, so I, I understand. I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, I don't think he was any more buddies with Putin or Kim Jong-un or, or the Chinese. I think Trump's, you know, Trump had a unique uh, way that he was going to treat all of these leaders uh, as, uh, as, as he should, as serious people. At the end of the day, they're in charge of their country. You may not like them. They may be dictators, but we have to deal with them. You know, and now we're really on the we're really on our back foot here now uh, because of of, you know, the advances that the Chinese are making uh, globally, uh, the, the inflationary problems, the lack of willingness to focus on on energy um, that, that now, I mean, Russia is kind of a footnote compared to what the existential threat of China is. Um, let, let me ask you a little bit about um the intelligence community and how you think the proper way to understand them is. I mean, this has been one of your areas of expertise for the last um, decade or so. And look, there are some, and, and we've, by the way, in American history, obviously we've seen this go back and forth between the political parties. Uh, but over the last you know few years for, for reasons you're well aware of a lot of 
uh, people on the right, and sometimes President Trump would use this, this terminology, would refer to the intelligence community or part of the intelligence community as a deep state that in a sense was pulling strings and not adhering essentially to the chain of command and to the mission. Is the U.S. intelligence community good at its job? Does it contribute uh, to the mission that Americans need it to contribute to? And is there some conspiratorial wing that's shadowy? Because that, I think, is what people think of when the word, when the term deep state is used. It's everybody knows there are bad actors that are ferreted out from time to time, but deep state yeah. sounds like its own ball. I think, you know, everybody, this, this whole idea of deep state um, is an interesting one um, that I think has, there's some, some, I would give it more of a broad definition. So I don't view um, deep state as having something to do with the CIA um, um, in, in, or the FBI in, 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 in totality. Uh, the way that I view, and I think most Republicans view kind of deep state, it's a term for Democrat-controlled uh, personnel and actors that are that are spread out across the entire federal bureaucracy. So it's not, you know, we've long known, you know, that there were problems at the Environmental Protection Agency, for example, problems in DOJ, uh, but now it's just it's just much broader. Um, and I think you see that manifest itself with the corruption that we see in the military. And I don't put that, I don't say that lightly, but you know, we've got, I mean, look, you only have to look at the catastrophe that occurred in Afghanistan, uh, which was completely, um, you know, completely brought on by Milley and other commanders and, you know, people within the White House um, who long held this crazy belief that, that seems impossible to even comprehend because it wasn't what the intelligence estimate said that you know, somehow the Taliban wasn't connected to Al-Qaeda, that somehow the Taliban wouldn't take over uh, Afghanistan quickly. Nobody in their right mind thought that, okay? No one uh, that, that reads any intelligence. So on one hand, you're, the deep state is much broader and it definitely exists. I think like all things, when you have a lot of people within the DOD and the intelligence agencies uh, that are patriots and warriors and they get it right and they got a lot right. Um, you know, for example, uh, let's just go back to Russia since we started on this. You know, the real people knew that, and it's the briefing that, that we had right after the election, that the Russians had not done anything out of the norm back in 2016. The good people, the people that focus on Russia knew that there was nothing out of the norm. What happened? It got politicized by deep state actors who took Clinton documentation and weaponize the intelligence agencies, the FBI and the Department of Justice against us, against me. I've always viewed that it's not, it's not Trump, it's not Carter Page, it's the conservative movement, it's the Republican party that they weaponize. This happens in third world countries. So, so and it's just went, it's just now, I think uh, the way I put it, David, it's just, it, it's just completely spread, it's metastasized uh, throughout the entire bureaucracy. And I think there's just a, a huge problem when you've got Washington, D.C., uh, the swamp that one political party, uh, the Democratic Party, gets 95% of the vote uh, and those bureaucracies get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more bloated. Uh, you're going to have mission creep. You're going to have inefficiencies. You're going to be scared 
um, if you're working in these agencies to even even pop your head up. Because if you're a conservative, you don't want to be in Washington, D.C. Is deep state just a salacious way of referring to an entrenched bureaucracy, which has been a problem in Washington for decades? Well, I, I think it's now from my person, I guess my definition because entrenched be bureaucracy more, sounds like a problem, but it doesn't sound like a conspiracy. Deep state sounds like a cabal. Yeah, yeah. I would say that the difference is bureaucracies are bureaucracies and every, you know, th- those can be in any business, uh, in any government, um, including, you know, red states have bureaucracies. Right. I mean, where Republicans have ruled forever, there's bureaucracies or bureaucracies. The difference here now, I think when I when I I don't really use the term deep state. But the, the way that I view it is it's about the Democrat Party controlling the levers of the bureaucracy, not about like a, it's not about a just bureaucrats being bureaucrats. This is about the the bureaucracy being controlled by the left wing, if that if that makes sense. OK, let me shift gears slightly, but stay on foreign policy. You know, a lot of what I do on In Trump's Shadow is talk about Trump's impact on the Republican Party. We got a little caught up in in some more current stuff and some of this Russia stuff just because it was too good to pass up with you on the podcast. But um, from a foreign policy perspective, my read on Trump's impact on the Republican Party is that it is now a little bit less adventurous overseas, and I'm talking about party philosophy, a little bit more skeptical of projecting military power. And I invite you to to disagree with this, but this has been my my read, not a dovish party, not a um, completely isolationist party, but definitely less adventurous and less willing to project American military power overseas. Right after all, it was President Trump that concluded that it was time for the Trumps to come home from Afghanistan. This is something that, you know, a decade ago, 15 years ago, if you and I had to pick which party will end up pulling our troops home um, without knowing that the nation has fully secured itself and, and remade itself, I don't know that we would have picked that it was a Republican doing it. Um, the, the former president would often talk about uh, possibly removing troops from the Korean Peninsula, removing troops from Japan. So my question to you is, has he changed the discussion on foreign policy and the projection of military power inside uh, the Republican Party? And to combat a rising China, regardless of what you think his impact on the party was, is it still a good idea to have troops stationed in Asia where we have them. And in fact, should we add to that to send a message to the Chinese that the Pacific region is not theirs and that we're not shrinking from the challenge that they are creating? Well, you have to, you have to take a step back. So this is a, you know, we could talk about this for hours, but I would say, I would say this, that the, the military and the leadership that it's had over the last two decades uh, and to some degree, the intelligence agencies with the leadership and look, there's a lot of political leadership too. Um, but they've gotten themselves to where it's tough for conservatives to stand up and say, well, we should just continue to do things the way we've been doing. Them. And, you know, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but uh, NATO has been totally ineffective. Um, they, you know, they don't pay their fair share. 
Um, the same with uh, with you know the situation in Korea and Japan and all over all over Asia. And so you know what you know I don't feel like I'm any less. Um, uh, I don't think we've really changed in terms of I don't think I've changed my foreign policy beliefs. I mean, I think I was onto this, uh, you know, long before. I mean, I had my problems with what we were doing in Ukraine, what we were doing with Russia, what we were doing with NATO, what we, you know, the basing throughout Europe that uh, that I spent several years trying to trying to move the military and the Department of Defense in the right direction. You just couldn't get through the bureaucracy. So. It's all about priorities. So I don't know that to answer kind of your one of the questions on troops in the in Asia. Well, look, whether you have fifty thousand or a hundred thousand or three hundred thousand, um, that's wars are not going to be fought like that. So you know, to some degree, there's there's a deterrence by troops. I want to. I do want those countries to have to pay their pay their share of this for us. To Let me just ask you this. Them. Let me cut you off for a minute. But mm-hmm. aren't we really there for ourselves? I mean. We're not, aren't we in Japan and the Korean Peninsula and elsewhere in Asia to send a message to the Chinese not to mess with us? So even if Japan one day said, you know, we won't really care, just leave. If you want to leave, fine, who cares? Like stay if you want, leave if you, if you want, we don't care. Do you think it's a good idea that we have a military presence in the Asia Pacific? Well, I, I do. I think it's a good idea that we have a military presence globally. For uh, us. It needs to be, For it needs us. to be strategically. It needs to be more strategic, more efficient, and more deadly, right? So we have to be, we have to have the ability to, we have to have the ability to win wars, correct? Right, and provide deterrence, correct? You don't do that by having seven inefficient bases in Germany and five in the UK, uh, and you know three spread out over you know five or whatever it is in in, in Japan. Um, you don't get it by. Um, having a, a, a you know 200 and some ship navy, uh, you don't have it by we can you know this is a whole other argument on my podcast. Actually, I've been doing some a lot of work on the uh, on the future of of the navy. Um, you know this whole idea that we're going to how many ships do you think we need? We we need probably 400 uh, and maybe more. You could argue even more. But what we don't need is we don't need uh, archaic aircraft carriers. Uh, that quite frankly, just are not going to be the future. It's not going to be the future battle we face. A few aircraft aircraft carriers are good, but the amount of men, uh, amount of sailors that it takes, the cost, the cost to build these things, it's skyrocketing. Um, frigates, and this is what we've talked a lot about on my podcast recently. Um, you know, we need a very sophisticated, large fleet of frigates, which right now we only have some in the ghost fleet. Um, we're we're going to build some new ones in Wisconsin, but you know, we need several hundred of those. Um, the same the same is true for, because that's how you project force. And then the rest of it's going to be through air, missiles, hypersonics, space, uh, and all of that. And then, of course, we need submarines. Now, and this is what I would say, don't forget, it's Donald Trump. It's a Trump, this is, you know, it's, it's a Trump White House who is who tried to get the military back on track. We tried to put investments into subs. I think to some degree, the subs are improved. Um, but we're still behind there. So it's just about, you know, what does the future of the military look like? Are they focused on three basic areas? Provide deterrence, win wars, stay out of politics. I would say right now, they're definitely not uh, the way that the, the Navy, that this idea that we're spending tens of billions of dollars on an aircraft carrier in today's uh, age, uh, I think is crazy. Um, I think the, the same is true for 
um, this F-35 program. Um, I always thought from the very beginning of this, it's foolish to create an invisible airplane. Uh, and then, it, well, it's not foolish to create an invisible airplane. That's fine. So, but we should control it. And yet, what do we do? Oh, we're all going to get along. Cold War's over. We're going to give it to every European country, Turkey, Israel. Well, this is how we got them to foot the bill, right? I've talked to people who work in the manufacturing and say how screwy it is. But in order to get them to foot the bill, they wanted some of the jobs. So these components are made all over the place. And of course, it's, it's a total mess. Right. Hey, but, let me, but it let, was a strategic error. And, I, and, I, and you know, this was probably the Bush administration, I would guess. It was a strategic error ever to come up with this concept of we're going to produce one airplane, we're going to produce 2,000 of them, and we're going to, it's going to be invisible, and we're going to give them to everybody else. Who the hell does that? I mean, it was, that was the dumbest, one of the dumbest decisions we've ever made. We should have, what we should have done, we had F-22s. We should have made the next generation of fighter, uh, you know, and you can argue over the numbers, a couple hundred of them, um, and then get on to the next generation of fighters. Um, why we would give, you know, it's fine to sell them F-15s and F-16s, fine, sell our allies that, but to provide them uh, this technology of having invisible fighters is, is, is madness. It remains madness. The idea, I mean, now with, I mean, what more evidence do you need than recently the, the tests that both the Russians have been doing, shooting down satellites, and that the Chinese have been doing with hypersonic weapons? On what planet uh, would one be to think that it's a good idea to put, to build more tens of billions of dollars uh, per, per copy of an aircraft carrier? I mean, it's, it's absolutely madness. I mean, it's fine to keep the ones we have. We can refurbish them. They would go for years and years and years. They project force out to uh, smaller countries where we could get out. And I think, you know, some of the capabilities that the vertical lift F-35s have is, is you know, very, um, uh, very useful, to, you know, in, in smaller conflicts, you know, going after terrorists and, and countries that don't have sophisticated weapons. But if you think aircraft carriers and F-35s, giving them the NATO, that that's going to deter Russia and China, uh, you're, you're a moron. Okay. I mean, it's just, you know, and I'm a, you know, granted, I'm just an ag guy. I'm just an amateur, you know, winemaker, but, <laughs> but I wouldn't want to be sitting out on a, on an aircraft carrier, which by the way, my grandfather served on an aircraft carrier, you know, all through World War II. The last thing I'd want to be is, is on one of those aircraft carriers. Uh, and, and we get into an engagement with, with China or Russia, because those things are going to be the first things hit. I thought you were an amateur tax guy. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> um, okay, let's do a lightning round here as we, as you and I could talk forever. Um, um, let me try and, and hit, do some quick hits here uh, before we conclude. Um, so you are as hawkish as, as you've ever been. Do you think the party is the same hawkish Republican party it was pre-Trump? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that... Uh... You know, look, I would be one of the leaders here. I think what we've just been talking about uh, is it's about it's about refocusing. I mean, you've seen I mean, essentially, the Band-Aid's completely been ripped off now. Right. I mean, we, we've known for a while that we've had questionable intelligence on things like, you know, how did the intelligence community and FBI DOJ get involved in the Russia? Uh, how did we end up ever with having all these bases that, you know, that all over the globe that are completely inefficient? How do we get to a spot where we think it's a brilliant idea to create uh, to continue to spend money on aircraft carriers? Um, how do we get to a point where, um, you know, where, where the Chinese have been leapfrogging us on hypersonics and cyber and everywhere else? You know, how did we get to that point? And so 
somebody, you know, I think I'm one of the major policymakers. I would say that uh, Mac Thornberry and I were in, in close agreement. He was the former chair and ranking member Republican on the Armed Services Committee. Um, I think Mike Rogers, you see him focusing a lot on, on space. Um, he's the new, he's the new uh, re Republican uh, lead on the Armed Services Committee. So um, I think it's about, we, and we have a lot of smart young guys also that have, that are veterans um, who also say, say the same thing. I mean, I know numerous uh, pilots uh, that are now in Congress serving as Republicans who say, you know, the same thing that I'm saying, which is this F-35 program is a boondock. All right. So what you're saying is you see the, the party still is, is, is hawkish as it's ever been on military matters and a desire to project American power. That is your read from where you are. Well, not only that, and I think what we're saying is the Band-Aid's been pulled off. We, the military, the way it's constructed now, when you've got, and I could name off a whole bunch of leaders uh, in the military, but we'll just spare that for now, um, that the military's gone woke. Uh, the DOJ and FBI are, 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 you know, completely, hopefully Durham can get to the bottom of this. Um, and what the Republicans are is we're conservatives who want to do very simple things. You know, and I'll just say it again, provide deterrence and win wars. And that ain't happening right now. So somebody's got to look at all this and say, we're spending 800 and some billion dollars a year, uh, more than any other country. And how can it? How can we possibly be this pathetic? And and I think and I would say people in the IC, smart people that I've worked with for many years, smart people within the Department of Defense, tell me the same thing. So everybody knows it, but how do you get past the swamp? So you've got basically what I think people are saying as oh that Republicans are less hawkish. What what they're really saying is look we're not for woke corporations that are providing you know all this useless equipment that we don't need and i think that's the big issue is a lot of republicans are saying look we've had enough of all these big the military industrial complex it's now all woke that you know is is siding with millie and wokeness and uh right you know, but I talking about insurrections and i mean just we've just had enough of it and and those of us who have been you know i've had the uh, the honor uh, to represent my constituents and represent the Republican uh, conference uh, all around the globe, you know, in third world countries, second world countries, uh, our allies and our enemies. Um, and, you know, you just sit back and look at this after you've seen it and you just have to say, look, we're, th this is, you can't be spending this much money and then be so ineffective to where you can't even do a simple withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan. Right. It was it possible to do a withdrawal that was not that was simple? And should we have with should we have withdrawn completely? Uh, well, no, but but nobody was ever talking about withdrawing completely. Well, the um, former president was, talked about withdrawing completely. He never no, talked about leaving not, behind a residual force. Le, yeah. No, in fact, there, early there, there early was. in Biden's presidency, he he at one of his rallies said that if I was still president, we'd already be out of there. And he said, watch, Biden will never leave now. The way Biden left was awful. Yeah, and well, created I, a I whole mean, look, host I'm of privy problems. To, no, no one was ever going to leave, so I'm privy to. I mean, there were lots of different options. It didn't have to be. I think what what myself and many Republicans were saying was was not that we were going to not that you're going to give up strategic locations. I mean, for God's sakes, we built a lot of those bases. There were two or three of those bases there. Bagram being the most popular one. That for for geostrategic reasons, we would keep that base. 
but that doesn't mean that we would keep funneling money into corrupt regimes in Afghanistan that just wasted the money and training them. All that needed to be out of there. So I mean, you think we, if we you think if Trump be, had won, you think if Trump had won re-election, we never would have pulled out of Afghanistan completely, and we would have left a residual force. Yeah, abs- absolutely. You okay, know, that was the plan. I mean, that you can talk to Pompeo. I mean, you can talk to the people who were involved. There was because look, you still have the counterterrorism problem. You still have Al Qaeda who was who was there. You still have China, um, and so there's no way. No, and this is why they did this. Remember. No plan ever talked about getting rid of Bagram. Why did the White House, and this is what I'm, you know, I'm convinced of, it'll be hard to ever get this. The White House, the Biden White House knew they had to get rid of Bagram first. Because if you, if you didn't get rid of Bagram, any military plan would know that Bagram would be the last to go. And the Biden White House knew if Bagram was the last to go, we'd never leave Afghanistan. And, and the lefties there always believed, they always thought the Taliban were buddies. So Jake Sullivan, Susan Rice, all these Obama-Biden people. I mean, I know they were always playing footsies with the Taliban. They always... Right, but Trump and Pompeo and the, and the Trump administration negotiated with the Taliban, right? And, and, and the Afghan government felt undermined by that. That started under Obama. It doesn't mean you still have to get to the point. We had to get the hell out of there. I mean... Funding, funding that government. Right, we had to get out. But even you're saying that we shouldn't have left completely, and that you don't believe we would have left completely if Trump had been reelected. I, I know that that was. I know that's a fact. Okay. Because a lot of us were involved in that. I mean, I wanted when I first went to Kabul, okay, almost what almost 20 years ago. um, It was a dusty little place with I don't know maybe a few hundred thousand people. Uh, We pumped so much money into there. Uh, and there was such a bureaucracy there. I mean, it's quite frankly, a total embarrassment, uh, the amount of money that we wasted there. Uh, there was no way that that country was ever going to make it. After all this time, all the money, um, the State Department, we can go there too. I mean, they're completely ineffective at trying to, uh, we just can't nation build is the bottom line. I don't even, it's, there's, it's impossible for us to nation build uh, in today's environment, especially in Afghanistan. Was it a good idea that was misguided? Yeah, I think it, I think it was a good idea at the beginning, uh, but I would say by you know by the time we hit 2010, 2011, um, what you had happen there, I was around at that time. Um, you had Obama and company who were making excuses for jihadists to pretend like the Al Qaeda was gone. Remember, you know Biden's or Obama's popular deal: Bin Laden's dead, Al Qaeda's on the run. Al-Qaeda was never on the run. Um, Al-Qaeda has always been uh, in the web with uh, the Taliban. We've always known that. There's never, there was never a way, all the guys who have fought over there, anybody who spent a lot of time over there, you knew uh, that country, it's just geographically challenged, Afghanistan. That's why empires go there to die. Um, much different than Iraq, uh, which is one of the richest countries that I've ever been to on, on the planet. Uh, it's, it's rich in, in soil and climate and water and oil and minerals. Um, you've got a long history um, uh, in, in Iraq, you know, of, of governments working there. You don't have that in Afghanistan. And so I think sometime around that 2010, 11, 12 timeframe, um, you know, we should have changed strategies there and essentially went to a counterterrorism only force and say, look, whenever you guys get your act together and some leaders uh, pop up, you know, maybe we could help you out. But, um, but in the meantime, we, we, we always and still need, and now we're flying blind there with no, 
a very limited capability to track Al Qaeda terrorists that uh, that essentially have been hidden by the Taliban for 20 years. Correct. All right. Before your scheduler gives me the hook, I want to cover two domestic issues. Uh, One will be very personal to you, but one um, is is related because of your service uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, What in your mind, what was January 6th? Because as I covered and saw January 6th, it was a group of people who stormed the Capitol to stop the certification of an election that has to occur under our system. So even if insurrection is too strong a word, it, it clearly seemed like something close to that, as ham-handed as it might have been, as um, unreal as it might have been, given that it, it never was going to happen. But that still seemed to be the intent of the people who stormed the Capitol, such that members of Congress had to be whisked away and barricaded and protected. Is, do you take any issue with, with my description of what happened that day? Well, I, I mean, well, look, what, I, what I've been saying from the very beginning of this is, is that why was the Capitol not protected adequately? I've been around for a long time. Any type of little protest and you've got proper fencing put up. Uh, I think that remains a, a question. Um, the Capitol's always been vulnerable to, to attacks like this, but I've been around for lots of protests um, and you had a lot more security than what we had that day. I think that's a, a major question mark. Uh, secondly, uh, is, you know, there are laws on the books and if laws were broken, people need to be prosecuted. And what I've been saying from the beginning of this is I want to know every single person that that forcefully either broke windows, went through barricades. And I have yet uh, to be able to see who those people are. In fact, those people, a lot of them haven't been prosecuted. And I think that's the, the, the question here is, is that people are saying that somehow like it's, it's there's some problem uh, with people protesting the government. Now, that's never been the case. You, people, it's a fundamental right that people have to go to the U.S. Capitol, the people's house, and protest the government. What they do not have a right to do is break windows and destroy federal property. Um, and I want to see every single one of those people prosecuted. But it becomes this, you know, it, it's like, uh, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this insurrection. It's like, wait a second. No, it was a protest where people were able to break into the Capitol that should have never happened. They should have never been able to break into the Capitol and those that did should be fully punished. At some point, I mean, it would be nice to know how many people actually did that forceful break-in because a lot of the people, a lot of the people just walked in. Right, but you've also seen the videos. I mean, they stormed the Capitol, correct? People that broke the windows and went through the barricades did that. But I would say, because I've talked to a lot of them, a lot of the people who were there uh, I mean, you have people getting prosecuted that didn't even go in, didn't even go into the Capitol, didn't even go in the Capitol that day. Right. Well, yeah. Well, let me let me put it this way. Right. So if there are a bunch of people looting, uh, looting at a mall or in a shopping district mm-hmm. and somebody else breaks the glass. And but I just happen to walk in when the place was locked up and now I walk through the broken glass and the police show up and they arrest me. Mm-hmm. Right. They're probably going to say, well, what were you doing here? The place was locked. And I'll say, well, he broke the window. I just walked in. I mean, I, I, I think my ultimate question to you is, is it anything other than what it looked like 
from your vantage point? Well, I think it's been completely politicized at this point. It's it's like I it's like I said that that I want to see those people who broke into the Capitol prosecuted, that, that destroyed federal property. And yet that's not, you know, it doesn't seem like that's, it's happening to some degree for other people. It's not happening the way some of these people have been treated. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people, David, that are, that weren't even in the Capitol and they've been prosecuted and they didn't go in the Capitol. So, uh, you know, that I think there was a zeal. It, it, it gets back to, um, you know, fake news narratives, Russia, just like Russia. It's like, oh, you know, insurrection, and we have to have, a, we're to have to go and prosecute all these people. Why are some of these people being prosecuted? Didn't even go in the damn Capitol. And and why, as members of Congress, what I've been asking, just tell me who broke the damn windows and entered forcefully. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. There's a degree of people that that were there. They knew the windows were broke. They knew they were going through a broken window. Versus most of the people, if you've, you've seen the videos, they got let in. The doors were open. So. Um, Look, what we ought to be doing, the, the, we've known for a long time the Capitol's been, been vulnerable, um, and it was extra vulnerable that day. So there needs to be steps taken. We don't, we don't need any new fancy studies. This has been studied for 20 years after 9-11. Um, and this was talked about even when you were on the Hill, you know, whether or not there should be some type of, of, of permanent type of fencing that, that you know, a, a better perimeter built around the Capitol. We knew that should have happened after 9-11. Uh, it didn't get done. It was, look, it was a, it was a, it was a democratic position because people didn't want to have. But that's you know, been a point of contention though, right? Because there was temporary fencing up after the events of January 6th. And there are people that disagreed with, with the fact that the fencing was up period. Right. They thought it was overblown and that January 6th really wasn't that big of a deal. And this was being used to further entrench government power around the Capitol and keep people out. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the question is, though, there were the question is whether you need some more permanent structures uh, to provide deterrence around the Capitol. I have long said that that has been needed. OK. And 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 that's what that's really what we should be talking about was the decision that was made back when I first came to Congress in that 2000. Oh, three or four time frame after 9-11, all these decisions were made and the decision was made, you know, because people b- believe, look, we don't really, we don't really want to have a, a, a wall around the Capitol. Now, look, I think there's ways that you could put up some walls and barriers that don't look that bad, that can be open most of the time. Um, but you should be able to quickly, um, you know, be able to close up the Capitol, secure it, because look, we're the, this is the United States of America. It's the people's house. People have a right to protest their government. Um, so we ought to make sure that not just to protect from protests or people that, you know, that get uh, uh, too excited, uh, you know, any type of violence, there should be the proper protection there. But it also has a double uh, uh, purpose, which is to also protect uh, against a, a type of terrorist attack, which, by the way, we've, we've had. Yep. You know, we've had cars running into the, capital, things like that. I mean, this is, it's, this has long been a vulnerability and, and what people ought to be focused on is, Hey, we're going to make sure in the future that for any protests, any terrorist act, we're going to have adequate, you know, proper, easy security so that everybody is secure and safe. But at the same time, we're not going to uh, go out and say that somehow it's a crime to protest uh, your government because okay. it's, it's simply not. And finally, uh, Devin Nunes, you are up for reelection in 2022 
it looks like the California Citizens Redistricting Commission is going to take the 22nd Congressional District in the Central Valley, your district, and rip it into a million pieces and parse it out here and parse it out there and parse it out somewhere else. Um, will you run for re-election next year in some Central Valley district? And if you, have you identified yet where you will run if the draft map that we have seen ends up being more or less the final map? Well, it's tough to, so there's, so, so there are five Central Valley uh, districts um, and it's tough to really comment on these draft maps at this time. Uh, but, you know, I've long said that I will run uh, where the bulk of my, uh, the bulk of the people in the Valley are in my media market. Uh, and that's, and that still remains the case. So uh, we'll just see what the final maps are. Uh, but, um, you know, as of right now, you've got some pretty wild looking districts where I don't think of the five members of Congress that are currently uh, represent the Valley, I don't think anyone's house is in the district that they would run in. Um, I don't know if this was done on purpose by the commission. I don't know if it's nefarious, uh, but look, from, from my perspective, uh, I will run just like I said, where, you know, I'm in the, the greater, you know, Central Valley media market uh, and there will be a Republican seat somewhere and I will run in that seat. And if the Republicans win the House majority next year, do you plan to run for chairman of Ways and Means? And do you expect to be chairman of the powerful tax writing committee, the Ways and Means Committee. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's my plan. I mean, look, it's you know Kevin Brady is still here. Uh, he's done a great job, um, but uh, but you know I'm the senior member next to next to Kevin Brady from Texas, who's retiring. And um, and look, these are issues that uh, that I care a lot about. Uh, you know, taxes and trade obviously are big big important issues. I had a, a big part of the the tax bill of 2017, especially on the, the full expensing, which I think has done wonders for small business and entrepreneurs. So it's something that, uh, that obviously I would want to go, go for, but we're not going to, at this point, I mean, I'm telling you, I, I will do it, uh, but we'll announce at the proper time, right? Once you're not going to, Kevin Brady just retired. There's not a, there's plenty, plenty of time. I mean, the focus right now has got to be on recruiting candidates, raising money, uh, to make sure we can win back the house. And right now that's, as you well know, um, it's unbelievable how well it's going. I mean, for us to be out raising uh, the, the Democrats uh, is simply unheard of in modern political history when you don't control, the Democrats control the White House, the Senate and the House. And for us to be out raising them, uh, and then not to mention the candidates that we're recruiting. I mean, we're, we're so far ahead of where we've ever been. Um, it's, it's almost, you know, you know, politically, uh, we're in a very good position. Sadly, part of that reason why is because uh, the socialists uh, have, you know, taken a very dangerous course in this country and are doing tremendous damage. I mean, you only have to go outside and look at the cost of gas and, you know, all the destruction they're doing in the energy markets. If you look at, you know, how weak we are globally that we've been talking, spending most of this podcast on, um, it's not hard to make a case that probably a lot of, um, of suburbs and, and exurbs are going to say, uh, I don't think we bought into uh, uh, to these types of, of radical policies. And so right now things are looking good, uh, but it's we're still a year away from the election. Congressman Devin Nunes, thanks so much for joining us on In Trump Shadow. Thanks for having me, Dave. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, 
is now available for purchase wherever books are sold. On a daily basis, you can catch my work online at www.WashingtonExaminer.com. We'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.